So good morning to everyone and thank you for, for joining us. Uh, today we conclude our series on saying yes, and particularly today we're going to talk about saying yes to goodness. As I think about the events and the stories in Scripture, there's a, there's a few key ones that have really, over the years, captured my imagination. And I want to start by talking about one of them today. And it's the, what's recorded for us a little bit in Exodus 33, but the main event is in Exodus 34. Uh, we see there the story where it's just after the golden calf and, and God is you know, disappointed in the nation and Moses is asking God, what now? And he basically says to God, you know, if your presence doesn't go with us, if you don't go with us, then I'm not interested in going. And this so impresses the heart of God that, he, that God says to Moses he's going to reveal himself to him. Now, when I read these scriptures, I often try and imagine, particularly the one in Exodus 34 that we're going to read shortly, is what it was like for Moses. I try and imagine being there, maybe not necessarily being Moses, but being one of the Israelites on the foot of Mount Sinai, just watching you know, God come down on the mountain and manifest himself in that way. But let's start by reading Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19, just so we can see the, the context for what God is going to do here. Exodus 33 verse 19 says, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so God promises to reveal himself to Moses. And it's interesting for me that he chooses the word goodness. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you more about myself. Now, remember, Moses already had some of, some of a revelation of God. He'd met God at the burning bush where God had told him, I am that I am. He'd seen God uh, execute the 10 plagues of Egypt, uh, split the Red Sea. But now God's going to show him more and he's going to show him more of who he really is. And, and God chooses this word goodness. Because who God really is, is fully captures the idea of goodness. It's interesting for me also that in this reference where God talks about revealing himself, he, he says he will have mercy and he will show compassion. So just after the Israelites are really messed up by worshipping the golden calf, the mercy and the compassion of God and, and that part of his goodness comes to the fore. So God makes this promise to Moses. As I understand the text, the next day Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and God puts him in the cleft of the rock, perhaps like in a, a little bit of a cave or something. Uh, so we read this in Exodus 34 from verse 5 to 7. And if we can read that together, it would be great. Exodus 34 from verse 5 to 7. It's recorded for us and it says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud. Imagine what that must have been like. The Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there with him, with Moses, and he proclaimed his name. He reveals who he is. Verse 6, he said, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Some, some translators say that can be translated maintaining love to thousands of generations. He maintains love to thousands. He forgive, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. So not only is God overridingly compassionate and forgiving and merciful, he's also just. And where punishment is due, that comes in an appropriate way, because sin 
is serious and sin has consequences. And so this is a self-revelation of God. It's a very important passage. This is not what somebody else is saying God is like. This is what God is saying he is like. He reveals who he is. And the word in Exodus 33 is he reveals his goodness because he's the one who's ultimately good. And so it's important for us, you know, often we say God is good and all the time God is good. When we use that, we, that, when we say God is good, we're not talking about an abstract concept. We're talking about something that has substance, substance and a quality to it. If you want to know what it means when God is good, then we come to passages like Exodus 34, and we see that he's compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and, and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands. He's forgiving so we see that when God says he's good, it's, it's something measurable, something we can see. And when we want to be good, these are some of the attributes and qualities that we can aspire to. So when we're talking about the word goodness, what do we mean? And if you run to, go to the dictionaries and you look at them, they'll just tell you that goodness is simply the quality of being good. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be good. Now, we've read a little bit about what God says about goodness, and we're going to come back to this in a while. But what about us, us as people, us as humanity? What does it mean to be a good person? I wonder if you've ever intentionally or consciously wondered about this. What does it mean to be a good person? And if we're honest, we all have some idea of what it means to be a good person. You know, if we went down the street to the mall and with one of the cameras and did a spot interview and asked people, what does it mean to be good? Everyone would have some idea. Now, whether those ideas are right or wrong is Perhaps not all that significant now, but all of us have some definition or concept of what does it mean to be a good person. And so I'd like to talk about three things today. I'm going to talk about humanity, unbelievers, unredeemed humanity and goodness. I'm going to talk about God and goodness, and then I'm going to end by talking about us as believers and goodness. And so what does it mean to be good? How does unsaved, unredeemed humanity think about this? You could perhaps use the word a secular view. I'm not convinced the term secular is great, but essentially, if you talk, if you have to take a broad view of people in living today, they would say to you that actually all people are essentially good. That that everyone actually in them is actually good. And and sometimes they'll say if someone's not quite good, you just need to educate them or enlighten them or inform them. It's a very dangerous position because if I believe that someone, if I believe that people are essentially good. And that is my starting point. One of the things that the consequences of that line of thought down the line is that that means that every desire a person has is also then good because they're essentially good. And this becomes a problem, particularly if those desires start negatively influencing others. You know, I'm sure the Rassam president currently thinks that what he's doing is good, uh, which probably most people wouldn't agree with at this stage. And so there's a challenge in the world where they believe that everyone's essentially good and you kind of educate aberrant behavior, you educate wickedness or, or evil out of people. I know there would be some people that say some people are born evil, but they have a problem in explaining why some people are born evil and some people are born good. So the question then becomes, how do people decide what is good? And how do they know when they've done something good or not? I wonder if you've ever thought about this, but if you think about your front line, that place where God has put you to extend his kingdom, to bring his love and, and his truth and his light into that situation. For the unsafe people you're meeting there, 
This is a very difficult question. How do they decide what is good? Is it about doing what is right at work so that you can get a raise? Uh, they'll tell you it's about being a good person. And if you push them in a very loving way, because people are precious, but how do you know what is good? And perhaps for us, it takes a little bit of a challenge to be a little bit brave and to start these kinds of conversations with people. Because the question then becomes, by what standard do we measure what is good? Now, some would say, well, I, it's my internal standard. It's my conscience. You know, Internally, I just know what is right and what is wrong. The problem is then what about somebody else's conscience? And what if something that you think is right is not so good for somebody else? Is it still good then? Some people will go, well, then perhaps my conscience isn't all that reliable in a good measure. And so I need something external to myself. Remember, this is outside of God, essentially. And so what are the options then? Perhaps it's about comparing myself to somebody else. As long as I'm better than those people, whoever those people end up being, the challenge is, you know, who do you pick? If you pick a criminal, then it's, then it's quite okay. It's perhaps easier, if you're not one, to be a good person. But what happens if you pick someone who's done a lot of good deeds, like perhaps, let's say, Mother Teresa? How do you pick who you're going to measure yourself against? And it's never good to compare ourselves to others. The challenge that happens in our hearts is we think that as long as I'm just a little bit gooder or better, if I'm a little bit, you know, if I've got more good on my scale than the person next to me, I'm going to be okay. But our problem is how do we decide and who do we pick? Maybe we don't compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to the majority, the societal standard. But we all know that societies sometimes have standards that are good and not bad. Probably I would suggest that the only external standard that can really help us decide what is good and to know what is good is when we start looking at God and what he's revealed. But something else that's interesting about humanity and goodness is that almost all people want to be good. Generally, no one wakes up in the morning and says, what evil can I do this day? Generally, the, the disposition of most people's lives is what good can I do? Now, you probably get you know, some really psychopathic people who want, wake up wondering what evil they can do. But in general, most people want to be good. And this is a widespread desire across humanity, across the world, many nations, many people, different generations. And so the key question then becomes that if there is this widespread desire to be good and to do good, well, then why aren't we living in utopia? Why hasn't this good world materialized as many secular thinkers and, and people have and humanists have thought it should do? Well, there's probably two thoughts that I'd like to propose on that today. The first one is that to be good is not always good for me. So to do good for others, it sometimes costs me something. Sometimes it inconveniences me. And this is very difficult for us sometimes is that to realize that to do good to others is not always in primarily in my best interest. It might cost me. Now, if we look at just an example from the Bible here, when Jesus died on the cross, that was good for humanity, but it cost him everything. It cost sacrifice. It cost pain. It cost suffering. But it was good, and it did good. And so sometimes people battle to do good and don't want to do good because it goes against their nature. And this is probably the second reason why we're not living in this utopia is that we desire to do good, but it's not born out in the nature, in our nature, in the nature of who we really are as people. You see, if something is true, it's always going to align with reality. So if we believe that people are essentially good, we can measure that against reality. What actually happens 
in history and in their lives. And if history, particularly the last 100 years, has taught us anything, is that humanity is not essentially good. We just think of world wars and genocides and, and uh, man-made famines and things like that. And so being essentially good is not aligning with truth. It's not the truth of, it's not born out in our nature who we really are. If you're a parent, do you remember the day you sat your children down and taught them to be selfish? No parent has ever had to do that. It's inherent in, in, in humanity. No one teaches their children to be selfish. No one teaches their children that, you know, that little when they grab that sweet or that toy in their hands and they go, mine. And then we come with our, as parents, no, you must share. Uh, it's against our nature. We're inherently selfish. It doesn't, uh, to be good is part of us, but there's also this inherent desire to be selfish and to look after our own best interests. And so how one answers this question of how do we decide what is good and, and what is the nature of people is quite determinative. So I think it's important now to bring in some of the biblical perspective. So what does the Bible teach about humanity and what it means to be human? And our answers for us are very clear in the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. I recently attended a seminar and the person speaking uh, commented and he said there's some Jewish rabbis I think from the past, who actually said that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 reveals everything you need to know, and the rest of the Old Testament is just commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, I'd like to think about that a little bit more, but I think there's quite a bit of truth to that. But in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have a very clear revelation about the nature of humanity, who people are. Well, firstly, we're told that we are made in the image of God. This means, therefore, that we have the capacity to be like God in the sense of doing good. We can do good. Some theologians call this the doctrine of common grace. Because people are made in the image of God, they can do good. But Genesis 3, so there's this wonder and there's this goodness because we're made in the image of God. But Genesis 3 tells us also that we're fallen. You see, we all chose to disobey God, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you read the text there, the temptation was that if you eat of this fruit, then you yourself will know and be able to choose what is good and evil. And what happens in that moment in history is that humanity then starts to try and decide and define what is good for themselves. And this is when pride enters our heart as well. So the Bible teaches us actually that we have a dual nature, not that we're two persons, but that we're one person with a dual nature. We have a nature that there is goodness in us because we're made in the image of God. Now, theologically, we might have a discussion about how much or how little of that goodness remains, but there is something in us that aspires to good because we're made in the image of God. But we're also fallen and we desire selfish things. Uh, Paul writes about this quite eloquently in Romans chapter 7 about the conflict between these two natures that are in us, our sinful nature and the nature that God puts in us, particularly when we're born again. It's important that we must understand that being good doesn't get us into heaven. And this is a fundamental problem of humanity since the time of the Garden of Eden, where we for ourselves want to try and determine not only what is good, but in our own strength and energy do good so that we can attain eternal life. But being good doesn't get us into heaven. Sometimes as believers, we think that Perhaps when we die, you know like those balancing scales you get where you put the weights on the one side and then you have to add weight to the other side to get them to balance out evenly? Sometimes I think we in our minds believe that, you know, one day when I die, 
and I think lots of people believe this, not us, not believers, the others, okay? But that when we die, God's going to weigh our lives and, and hopefully our scale tips that we've done just a little bit more good or a whole lot more good than what we've done evil. But this doesn't get us into heaven. This is what the, Paul very clearly teaches us in the New Testament. In fact, I think that idea of the balancing scales and being weighed when you die, your soul getting weighed, is much more Egyptian than Christian. I saw it in a movie once, so it must be true. Now, uh, as we were recording, as you know, this was part of a series. We recorded some episodes for ETV. Uh, there were some great questions asked in the Q&A. But one of the great questions that would asked is, so if I'm not, can I ever be good enough? In and of myself, can I ever be good enough? And our panelists did a great job of, of answering the question. But they said there's a short answer and a longer answer. The short answer is actually to, to meet God's standards, no, you can never be good enough. But the wonderful news is but that God has a plan. You see, we do actually realize that in our own merit, in our own self-effort, we're actually never going to be able to be good enough. And this then brings us to the point where we realize, and sometimes it's a hard realization, particularly if you've tried to be a good person your whole life, is that you're never going to be good enough, and therefore you need salvation and you need a Savior. That's God's plan. And so God comes and he works this in our lives. If I may quote Pastor Mel Radley, she was one of the panelists, and in part of her response to this question, she says, no, you're never going to be good enough, but you are loved enough. And I think that's a great way to summarize the tension that we live in. We're never good enough, but we're loved enough. God loves us enough to save us and to rescue us from ourselves. So when we think of unredeemed and unsaved humanity, they have a significant problem because not only can they not be good enough, they just don't even know how to decide what is good and how to be good enough. And so we have to turn our attention to God and goodness and believers and goodness. And so, you know, in preparing, I, I went through the Bible and I, and I, you know, did a concordance search and I looked for all the times we find the word good or goodness. And, and I didn't study every verse in detail, but as I, as I read through most of them, the one apparent thing for me, Old Testament and New Testament, is that God is always the primary reference point for what it means to be good. God is the primary reference point for goodness. This is throughout the Old Testament books. In the Psalms, it's so much that you know, we, uh, the Lord will lead us besides all quiet waters. Because he is our shepherd, goodness and mercy will follow us. Psalms speak a lot about the goodness of God. But God is the primary reference point of goodness. Now, I started this morning by talking about the book of Exodus and how God reveals himself to Moses, not only to show Moses more of who he is and to empower Moses for the task and the journey ahead, but also because God wanted Moses to know what he was really like and what it really is uh, to be good. And so again, just to remind us, when God shows goodness, it's a part of being compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but still not leaving the guilty unpunished, being just. But as we consider God and goodness, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, please. And I want to see how Jesus, one example of how Jesus interacted with this idea of who is good and what is good. This passage also is going to help us bridge to our next section on the believer in goodness and how do we as believers engage with, with goodness. But we'll start by focusing on what Jesus says about goodness. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16 to 26, Matthew 19, 16 to 26. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, 
what good thing, what good must I do to get eternal life? This is a very revealing question. The man wants to know what good deeds, what good works, what good things must I do to get into heaven? That's really the question that he's asking. Now, we would like Jesus to have said, Allah John 3, you must be born again. But Jesus goes much further for the heart of this, this man. Jesus says in verse 17, why do you ask me what is good? Now, obviously, the young man had seen something in Jesus. Jesus replies to him and said, there is only one who is good. And so Jesus confirms the Old Testament when he says that it's only God is good. If you want to know what is good, you can only look at God. If you want to know what good things you must do, then God is the standard. So Jesus very clearly affirms that God is the standard of goodness. God is the only one who is good. Now, there is some subtext here that Jesus is saying, if you're asking me who is good, well, I am God. I know what is good. So Jesus replies, verse 17, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. That's the person of God. Then Jesus says, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. Now here, the commands might mean the Ten Commandments. That might mean the whole Old Testament law. But I think what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know what is good, look at what God has revealed. Because the Ten Commandments, for example, came from God. Therefore, they are good in that sense. Now, this man, and he's not a teenager, he's a man, but he asks Jesus, which ones? It's such a interesting, almost impertinent kind of question to ask Jesus. So if you want to know what is good, Jesus says, do what God has revealed. But only God is actually good. Which ones the man asked and he required, and Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. So Jesus largely quotes the Ten Commandments there. Now, the man's answer is phenomenal. He says, all these I have kept. Now, if I was Jesus, I would probably go, oh, maybe... What about that one day you were just a little angry with your father? Was that really honoring? But Jesus doesn't go there. And, and maybe the man was right. Maybe he was like some superstar. <laughs> maybe he really had kept every single one of these perfectly his whole life. But then the young man's questions in verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man says, what do I still lack? Such insight from this man. He has lived a good life. He has met high standards. He has been a good Person. He's probably been better than most people around him. He's achieved more than society would have expected for him. But his question is, what do I still lack? And that's the story of many of us as believers. We, if we've tried to live good lives, we realize that doesn't get us into heaven. That doesn't give us eternal life. We still lack. The young man, or this man at least, understood his need. But Jesus doesn't let up and go, oh, well done. He says, if you want to be perfect, now we're going to come back to this word perfect, but it carries with it the connotation of completeness. So if you want to be complete, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. I'm not going to read the rest of the text, but the story then goes on and says the young man couldn't because he was very wealthy, and he couldn't give up his wealth. The thing he lacked was actually that he was a materialist. He put his trust and his priority in wealth and not in God. And Jesus then says to the disciples, it would be difficult for rich people to come into, the heaven, into heaven because they have so many other priorities, things that they can easily put before being before God. But very encouragingly, Jesus also says, with God, all things are possible. And so we see here also Jesus saying that only God is good and God is the standard of goodness and what God has revealed is the standard of goodness. But we also see the story of 
of the believer of us that we know that we lack and we need to come to Christ. So what about us as believers in goodness? What do we know? Well, we know from Galatians 5 that goodness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Goodness is something that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Like fruit grows, goodness can grow in us. We know that in Luke chapter 23, it says that Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. We know in Acts 11, and it says Barnabas was a good man. So it is possible to be a good person. The Bible clearly says that. But I want us to turn a little bit earlier in Matthew to chapter 5, please. Um, because Jesus here also very clearly speaks about the standard of goodness. What does he expect? And it's going to be perhaps a little shocking to you. Now, in Matthew 5, it's obviously part of the Sermon on the Mount, God revealing, Jesus revealing standards of goodness and how he wants us to live and, and how he wants us to behave. What does it mean to be good? You, you, you know, you can read through the Sermon on the Mount as an example of that per se. But in Matthew 5, Jesus very clearly says, if you trace just the topics through the chapter, that he's come to fulfill the law. That, and then he, it's like what he does is he raises the bar on everything in the Old Testament. You know, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's redefining the law. He's taking it up a level. You know, so for example, he says, if you, you've heard that it was said, if you commit murder, you should die. But I'm telling you, if you even hate your brother. Uh, he says the same about adultery. You know, if you even think about it. He says you shouldn't get divorced. You shouldn't make oaths. You're, you must be an honest person. Your yes must be your yes. Your no, your no. He says you must not repay evil for evil, not an eye for an eye. You must turn the other cheek. He's raising the standards all the time. And then he says you've heard that it says love those who love you, but I'm telling you love your enemies as well. Jesus raising the bar. And then the last verse in Matthew 5 verse 48, Jesus says the following. He says be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is Perfect. Perfect is such a difficult word for us, such a difficult, because we know we're not perfect. At least if you're married, you know you're not perfect. You've probably been told that once or twice by your spouse. But Jesus says you must be perfect. In other words, whatever the requirements of the Old Testament law were, Jesus goes, there's a higher standard. I want a greater commitment from my followers than just obeying external rules and obeying external laws. I care about your thoughts. I care about your heart. I care about this. Now, we're going to talk about the word perfect a little bit, but did you notice the standard that Jesus sets? As your Father, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. God, again, is the standard. So Jesus reconfirms what is the standard of goodness? God is the standard of goodness. The principle throughout Scripture, by the way, is that God's people should reflect God's character. So if we read books like Leviticus and says, Be holy as I am holy, the principle is God's people reflect God's character. And so when Jesus is teaching here about how to live in a way that pleases him, that's the underlying principle. God's people must reflect God's character. Now, this word perfect is the Greek word teleos, and it carries with it the very strong idea, as I said earlier, of being complete or being unblemished, being blameless. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, when they translate the word like blameless, they actually use this word teleos. This word teleos is used later in Corinthians and Philippians and Hebrews to mean spiritually mature. So it's this idea of you reaching maturity or completion. So when Jesus says perfect, he doesn't mean without fault. He means that you're moving towards completion and if to, to, to being complete, to being whole, to being fully devoted. And if you want to know what the standard is, is you're moving towards your heavenly father. We're called to be children of our father in heaven and to be like him. That's the word in Matthew 19 when Jesus says to the young man, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, 
It's not about obeying the laws. It's about overcoming that which has conquered your heart. Because that young man's wealth and possessions had conquered his heart. And only by giving them up for that young man, by giving them up, would he be able to overcome his heart. And so Jesus' standards is that we are fully devoted to him, that we complete for him. One of the commentators, R.T. France, who writes on this passage in Matthew 5, says, because our Heavenly Father is the standard, we don't rely on the norms of society, but on the character of God to know what is good. And so we are called by Jesus. If we want to be good, God's children must be like their Father in heaven. God's people must reflect God's character. And so Jesus teaches us what is good. He also shows us what is good by the life he lives. He, he doesn't only say it, he does it. He lives a good life. Jesus teaches us what is good. But more importantly, we'll read now in the scriptures, that he gives us the power we need to overcome ourselves, our sin and our selfishness, and to live good lives. But this is a process. This takes time and process. Theologically, we call this the process of sanctification. It's a process of being made holy, being made like God. How does this work? How does God make us good or enable us at least to do good? And I want to to illustrate this, I want to read a scripture in Titus chapter 3. It's not a book we read very often from, but Titus chapter 3 from verse 3 to 7. Because in this verse, there's a, it gives us a, just a good answer to this question about how does God work good in us? How does God not only establish us and bring us to a place that we can be good, but that we can actually end up doing good as well. So Titus chapter 3 from verse 3 to 7. It says, at one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, maybe you read that and you go, yeah, no, I identify, or maybe this is just the people in Crete where Titus was that were, were like this. Um, and maybe you go, no, no, I've been a good person. I've never done any of those. Well, maybe you're not so foolish. <laughs> maybe you're more on the foolish side of things then. But the point is we were all unredeemed. We were unregenerated in terms of that God hadn't made us new people and we lived for our own selfish desires. But, verse 4, I love sometimes the word but in the Bible because it just changes everything. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, remember Exodus 33, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, not because of the good we, have, we thought we did or aspired to do, but because of his mercy. So one of the ways God makes us good is he shows us mercy. Paul goes on and he writes to Titus and he says, he saved us, God saved us through the washing of rebirth and, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that having been justified by grace, justified simply means that you pronounced right with God. You pronounce right with God by his grace. We also become heirs, we become children of God, having the hope of eternal life. So if you want to do good as God defines it, you need to be reborn. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, whom God has poured out on us generously, Paul says here in Titus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another important scripture is Ephesians 2. Verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's this element where in and of ourselves we cannot do good. But when we are born again and the Holy Spirit lives in us and empowers us, 
God has prepared good works for us to do. There are good things that God wants us to do. And so there's this partnership with God that develops. God has prepared good works, but I need to be born again. And then his spirit lives in me and empowers me to do the good, to overcome my sinful nature and to do good. So what does it mean to say yes to goodness? Well, first of all, I think two words are important. I think it's about surrender and about, and about embrace. I think we have to surrender our own desires and wills and feelings of what it means to be good. We have to surrender that our own efforts, our self-effort to be good and to earn salvation. We have to bow the knee to Jesus and surrender. But we also then have to embrace the power of God working in us and through us so that we can participate in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. So when you're on your front line, perhaps at work or minding the children tomorrow or teaching kids at school, how can you be good there? Surrender the sin and the selfish desires and the frustration and consider this question. God, what are you already doing here? God, what good work are you doing in this place that I find myself in today? This time tomorrow, God, what are you doing here? And then we start cooperating with what God is already doing. And that then becomes doing good. But the important thing is that we do not rely on our own strength and effort. Paul writes something similar to this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, where you've begun in the spirit, don't continue in the flesh. In other words, in your own self-strength and effort. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. So you pray, Holy Spirit, help me to see the good that you're doing here or the good you're wanting me to do. And then give me the power to do it. Isn't this the grace and the compassion of God that he knows we cannot do good in and of ourselves, but he gives us the power and the grace and the compassion to overcome ourselves and to do good. So what does it mean to say yes to goodness? I believe it's this task of surrender and embrace. To be perfect means to fully surrender ourselves to Christ, to embrace all that he has for us so that we can be completely devoted to him. Last scripture for this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. And this is the, the prayer I'd like to pray over you. With this in mind, Paul writes, he says, We constantly pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. Isn't that a wonderful scripture? that God will bring every desire for goodness to fruition and every deed prompted by faith. So as we close in prayer this morning, won't you allow me to pray this verse over you, over myself, over us as a benediction. So Father, in Jesus' name, we pray and ask that you would make us worthy of the calling that you've called us to and that by your power, we can, you would bring fruition to every desire for goodness in our life, to every deed prompted by faith. I speak this over your people this morning, Father, and we say yes to goodness. We say yes to being like you. We say yes to being your children that reflect who our Heavenly Father is and the goodness of who He is to the world. Because when we can show the world how good you are, Father, you will draw men to you. Help us to be the ones who reveal the kindness and love of God, our Savior in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.